Today's reading is Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are, you are a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he felt faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry with the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. King's Quest students, you, you can head out to the lobby and find your teachers there. The rest of you may be seated. Good morning, Grace. My name is Esther McCurry, and every couple of months I have the privilege of sharing with you all from God's Word. And today is particularly special for me because we are finishing our series in the book of Jonah. And if you know our family, you know that we have a Jonah. Should be a picture. That's our boy Jonah. <laughs> That's from a few months after he was born. Back when we were having our kids, we were in the camp of people who didn't like to know the gender of our babies before they were born. So when I was pregnant with Jonah, I didn't yet know that he was Jonah. This was true, Jonah's our second child, so this was true in our first pregnancy as well. So when we were going into uh, the final part of the pregnancy, we had a boy name and a girl name picked out, both ready for the birthday. So our girl name was Ruth and our boy name was Jonah. And then obviously our firstborn is a girl, so we named her Ruthie. And we kept on our boy named Jonah for the next time around. So the next time around when we got pregnant again, we came up with a new girl name and we had our boy named Jonah ready. 
And again, if you know our family, you know we never got to use that second girl name because we proceeded to have three boys. But I was delighted when we got to name our first son Jonah. I actually really enjoyed not knowing the gender of our babies because once people ask you what you're having and they find out you don't know, then they don't ask you what the name is. <laughs> we always wanted to keep our babies' names close to the chest because we didn't want people's feedback. Have you noticed that people are less likely to offer feedback on a baby's name once it's already been born and it's on the birth certificate and it's too late? <laughs> but they're willing to give you feedback when the baby's still in the womb. This was our theory, at least. It didn't totally work out with Jonah. We got a surprising amount of feedback after he was born for choosing the name Jonah. I remember Ian's grandfather, who is a wonderful godly man, had quite a bit to say about the choice and the name Jonah. He wondered why we would choose to name our son after a faithless prophet who ran from God. I remember another conversation with Pete Diebel. He goes to this church, said I could share this story, in which he said, you don't hear too many Jonas. Pete had a little more tact than Ian's grandfather. And we were able to tell Pete what we told Ian's grandfather, and that is that we love the story of Jonah because it is such a reflection of humanity. We don't get it right the first time, do we? God tells us something, we hear him speaking something to us, and we don't want to do it. And yet the beauty in the story of Jonah is that God pursues in the midst of that disobedience, and he gives Jonah a second chance. And so we love the story of Jonah. When we told that to Pete, he said, if I'd thought of it that way, we might have had a Jonah too. And it warmed my heart. Because we wanted to be reminded of the truth in Jonah. We chose this name so that we would be reminded, so that our son Jonah would know that God is a God of second chances who pursues even when we don't get it right the first time. The other reason that I love this name and that we chose the book of Jonah is because Jonah knows who God is. Jonah sees God clearly. He knows exactly the kind of God God is and how he will act. Jonah knows his God well. And so we chose this name for our son Jonah. I think there's going to be one more picture of Jonah. It's not a whole slideshow, I promise. <laughs> this is our Jonah from just a few weeks ago on vacation. And we wanted our Jonah to know what his namesake knew, his God and how his God would act. And what Jonah knows, we're going to learn today as we look at chapter 4. But before we jump into chapter 4, let's recap where we've been. We took off last week to sort of celebrate our kids and hear about camp. But when we started this series, we looked at the first chapter of Jonah. And in the first chapter of Jonah, you hear God call to Jonah and tell him to go to Nineveh. And it says, because their evil has come up before me. That's verse 1. That's chapter 1, verse 2. But Jonah flees the presence of the Lord, though we aren't told in chapter 1 why he does that. That's something else we're going to learn today in chapter 4, why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And then you know the rest of the story. Jonah runs away from God. He buys passage on a ship that's going in the opposite direction. Then a supernatural storm comes over the boat. The sailors have no choice but to throw Jonah overboard, which they do. Before Jonah is lost to the sea, a fish swallows him, and while Jonah is in that fish, he prays to the Lord for salvation. God hears his prayer, and the fish spits Jonah up on the land. 
This time, when God comes a-knockin', Jonah is ready to go a-walkin'. It says in chapter 3 in the book of Jonah, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time Jonah goes. He goes to Nineveh and he walks through the city and he proclaims the message, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message God wanted Jonah to say. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And so we talked about this two weeks ago. Will talked about Jonah's little lackluster message, Nineveh, watch out. That's what he says. Nineveh, watch out. And they do. The people hear the message. They repent. They put on sackcloth. They fast. And they wait. And they hope. And they pray. And their repentance turns the heart of God. Right? He relents. It says this in the final verse of chapter 3 in the book of Jonah. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster <clears throat> that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So this is where we are today as we enter the fourth and final chapter of Jonah. Jonah proclaims his prophetic message. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. The people hear it. They repent. God relents of the disaster. And so this is where we start in chapter 4, which you just heard read. But I want us to work our way through chapter 4 together, because as we see Jonah's response to his successful prophetic message, it's going to reveal to us what it is that Jonah knows about God. Jonah knows that God is gracious. Jonah knows that God is merciful, that he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in love, and that he is willing to relent. And it is this knowledge that causes Jonah to run in the other direction when God says, go to Nineveh, because Jonah does not want the Ninevites to experience his, his God. He does not want the Ninevites to see this God who is gracious and merciful and abounding in love. So as we look at chapter four, we're going to see Jonah's response to his prophetic message, and we're going to also see God's response to Jonah. And as we see God's response to Jonah, we're going to see how God reacts to us. This morning, we are going to see a God of second chances, a God of grace and mercy, a God who would send his prophet to a pagan nation, to a wicked people who do not worship him because his heart is that none would perish. This is the God that Jonah knows. And this is the same God who longs to reveal himself to us today. So in chapter 4, we're going to see Jonah's response to his message, we're going to see God's response to Jonah, and then we're going to see what God, what God wants from Jonah. God, who is gracious and merciful, is asking Jonah to extend that same grace and mercy to the people of Nineveh. God has given Jonah a second chance, and he is asking Jonah to be that same way toward the people of Nineveh. So go ahead, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Jonah chapter 4. If you want, there's a blue Bible under your seat, and Jonah chapter 4 is on page 775. As we begin this final chapter in the book of Jonah, we're going to see that Jonah's response to his success with his prophecy is not what you might expect. Other Old Testament prophets would have been thrilled with this kind of response, to see this whole 
wholehearted turning and repentance and putting their faith in God. But not Jonah. Jonah is not happy that he has success. In fact, he's very, very mad. He doesn't want the people of Nineveh spared, and he's very mad that God relents. Let's look at Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. In other words, Jonah is super, super ticked off. He's very mad at God. He doesn't want these people saved. And when God relents of the disaster he was going to bring upon them, Jonah is mad. Now why? We've mentioned several times that Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. What does Jonah have against the Ninevites? Why is he so resistant to these people seeing his God of mercy and grace? Well, it's because of what Jonah knows that Nineveh will ultimately do to his own nation of Israel. Nineveh is part of the empire of Assyria, and as a prophet himself, Jonah would have known the other Old Testament prophets who warned of Israel against their idolatry and their disobedience, saying, if you do not repent, Israel, the Assyrians are going to destroy us. And so these people are Jonah's enemies, and he does not want them to be saved. So when God relents, Jonah explodes in anger, and he is so mad, and he takes it right back to God, and let's look what he says in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In his anger, Jonah has an outburst in which he accuses God of being compassionate. See, my friends, Jonah knows his God. He knows God is gracious and merciful. He knows God is kind and abounding in steadfast love and willing to relent of disaster for those who call out to him. But unfortunately for Jonah, his knowledge of God does not make Jonah like God. Instead of offering compassion himself, he is angry. He is mad. He is exceedingly displeased. And he says, to God, he says all these wonderful, faith-filled things about God. You're gracious, you're merciful, you're abounding in love. He says all these wonderful things, but he says them as an accusation. He says, see God, see, this is why I didn't want to come here. I knew you. I knew you would do this. I knew the second these people repented that you would show them your mercy. And he doesn't want to see it happen. And he's so mad at God about it. Jonah's own prejudices, his own patriotic loyalty to Israel, his own hatred of this pagan nation makes it so that he is so angry when God is moved by compassion and save those who call out to him. So let's see what happens after Jonah's outburst, after Jonah accuses God of acting exactly how he knew he was going to act, out of love and compassion, Jonah makes a dramatic request of God. So let's take a look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Well, Jonah, that seems slightly overboard, don't you think? Ah, I love it. Jonah, is, he, is so, he claims to be so angry at God's grace that he would rather die than live in a world where the Ninevites are saved. That's how angry he is. Also, that's how dramatic he is. 
Jonah was, Jonah's all set to receive God's mercy himself. He's very happy for that fish that saves his life and spits a bump on land. That's great. God, bring your blessing to me, but don't give it out to the Ninevites. That I don't want you to do. That's going to make me super mad and so mad I want to die. So Jonah asked God rather to just kill him, rather to live in a world where the Ninevites are spared. And let's look at God's response to him. It is such a perfect, classic, put things back in perspective, God response. Look at verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? God hears Jonah and basically laughs in Jonah's face. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Are you right in your anger? Can you not see that you are very willing to accept my grace, but you don't want me to give it to anyone else? You can just picture God, can't you? Kind of up there, taking his head, but also smiling at this child of his who doesn't quite get it yet. God asks Jonah a rhetorical question because, of course, Jonah knows deep down that he's not right in his anger, that, of course, God's going to relent when people repent. But Jonah is not ready to accept this. He is not ready to admit that God is right and that he is wrong. And so he doesn't answer God's question. And as we keep seeing, we're going to see, as we keep reading, we're going to see that Jonah goes from anger and accusations against God to sulking and pouting. Very effective. So let's look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat down to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Again, the mental images are just flying off the page. Jonah is yelling all these accusations that God mad at him for being merciful. And then he stomps out of the city and he makes a little hut and he crosses his arms and he sits down to look at the city and see what's going to happen. He knows God isn't going to change his mind. He knows that God is going to offer mercy. But it's like Jonah's giving God one last chance to come to his senses and smite these Ninevites. But of course, God isn't going to do that because of the kind of God that he is, gracious and merciful, compassionate and abounding in love. But also because of the kind of God that he is, God isn't going to leave Jonah out there in the outskirts of the city. God pursues Jonah out to his little hut. And as we're going to keep reading, we're going to see the way the Lord takes care of Jonah. Look at verse 6 and see what God does. Now the Lord had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So it's clear from the text that this little hut that Jonah has made in his little sulking, pouting fit is not going to be sufficient to provide shade as the day goes along and it's getting hot. And so God intervenes in the life of Jonah and he provides a plant. He causes a plant to grow, likely a plant with broad leaves that would give shade as the day goes on and spare Jonah his discomfort because that is the kind of God God is. He is lavish in his grace and he cares for Jonah. He knows that Jonah's sulking, but he's not going to leave him there alone and unattended. And as God plants this vine and causes it to grow, it's also like he's putting the ball back in Jonah's court. See, Jonah, here's another example of my mercy. Will this mercy turn your heart toward the people of Nineveh? Again, as we see in the text, Jonah is very glad to receive God's mercy for himself. 
And this time, instead of being exceedingly displeased, the text uses the same language, but to say this time Jonah is exceedingly glad. And don't you love Jonah's big emotions? Our own Jonah has big emotions sometimes. <clears throat> this Jonah is always exceedingly something. But will this mercy remind Jonah of the mercy that is due to the Ninevites? Will this vine, which is such a clear expression of God's grace in Jonah's life, cause him to turn his heart toward these lost people, to offer them compassion, to accept God's will that they are spared and have find salvation? Well, we can see that this expression of God's mercy does not move the heart of Jonah. He doesn't leave his little booth and go back to the city and help these brand new God followers on their path to God. He's still sitting there sulking the next day when the sun comes up. Take a look at verse seven. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withers. Jonah is still pouting in his booth, waiting for God to unleash his wrath on Nineveh, even though he knows not, God's not going to do that because of the kind of God he is and because these people have repented from their sins. So God chooses once again to intervene in Jonah's life. God removes the plant that he had given Jonah for his comfort, and this is to jolt Jonah out of his disobedience, out of his sulking, out of his pouting, and as we keep reading in verse 8, we're going to see that God then calls a wind and has the sun scorched down on Jonah to make him miserable. God is trying to get Jonah's attention. He is trying to get Jonah to see the irony in his situation. Look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God is trying to get Jonah's attention. He is trying to get Jonah to see the irony in the fact that he cares so deeply about this plant, but he does not care for an entire lost city. Jonah is very glad for God to be the God of second chances for him, the God of third chances, really. But he doesn't want that for the people of Nineveh. And so again, Jonah claims he would rather just die. He's lost his plant. There's nothing left to live for. Just kill me now, God. This, we'll see, begins a dialogue between God and Jonah. As we keep reading, we're going to see that again, God asks Jonah, are you right in your anger? And this time, Jonah can't keep his mouth shut. Look with me at verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> Jonah feels so justified in his anger. He's so mad at God for taking the plant that he would rather die. And he fails to see the contrast between how he feels about this plant and how he has acted toward the people of Nineveh. Let's keep reading, because as we see the conversation continue, we see that God is going to once again act out of abounding love. God explains to Jonah that he has no right to be angry about the vine. He didn't plant it. He didn't water it. He didn't cause it to grow. He did nothing to tend to it. Why is Jonah so upset about this plant? Read with me in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
God reminds Jonah that the vine is a total act of mercy. Jonah didn't plant it. He had nothing to do with it growing. And yet Jonah is mad about it being gone. And God is trying to get Jonah to see the plant is not really the point, Jonah. And I think Jonah is beginning to suspect that. Let's keep reading. I want to start again in verse 10, because as we read, we're going to see that God makes the connection for Jonah that he was unwilling to make for himself. Jonah grieved over a plant, but he would not grieve over the people of Nineveh. Jonah was sad about this lost plant, but he showed no compassion on the thousands, thousands of lost people in Nineveh. Let's start again in verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Mic drop from God, right? It's not about the plant, Jonah. <laughs> this plant that was, that Jonah didn't plant, this, this vine that Jonah didn't plant, that he didn't water, that he didn't trim, that he didn't cause to grow, that he did nothing, that he only had for a night, this plant Jonah is grieving over like a gardener who has tended this beloved vine for years, and he's brokenhearted when it dies. And God reminds Jonah, that is not the case. That is not the case between you and the plant, but it is the case between me and Nineveh. These people and animals I have created, all of the inhabitants of Nineveh, I have labored over, I have tended, and it has broken my heart to see them in their sin. Jonah, it's not about the plant. It's about the people of Nineveh. And God wants them to flourish. The description of the people who don't know their right hand from their left hand is actually unique to the book of Jonah. So scholars don't know exactly what it means, but it is likely that it is, it is a description of people who are so spiritually broken that they are wandering, blinded by their sin and their separation from God. And God is so moved by their, <clears throat> by their lostness that he sends his prophet to speak words of truth over them. That's the kind of God he is. God uses the plant to show Jonah how unlike God Jonah has been to the people of Nineveh. Jonah knows who God is. He knows God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah has not been like God. He's been happy to receive God's second chances, happy to receive God's grace in his own life, but he isn't willing to extend it to the Ninevites, to his enemies, to this people group that he has deemed unworthy. Well, this time, there's no response from Jonah. We don't know exactly how Jonah responds because the book ends here. But even this abrupt ending, I think, serves a purpose. <clears throat> it causes us to probe our own hearts, to reflect in our own minds, do we know what Jonah knew? Do we know the God who is gracious and merciful? slow to anger and abounding in love and willing to relent of disaster. My friends, is that the God you know? Do you, like Jonah, know God so well that you know he will move towards you in grace and mercy? 
Do you know a God of second chances who is quick to forgive and relent of disaster for those who call on him? Because that is who our God is. That is who our God is. There is so much cynicism in our world today. There is so much bleakness. And we have let that bleakness seep in even among Christians. And so there's a cynical view of God that he is harsh and unloving, that he is waiting for us to fail so that he can strike us down. Maybe we hold to the view of God, but we have let the cynicism of the world filter into that view. And so we see him as apathetic, unconcerned, disinterested. People of grace, that is not who God is. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He loves you. He is for you. He is with you. He is relentless in his pursuit of you. He delights in you, people of grace. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Is your heart sure of that? If you are not sure of our God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, may I encourage you to spend more time with him. Spend time with him in his word, reading about who he is. Spend time with him in worship as you declare over and over the kind of God he is. Spend time with him in prayer as you ask him to reveal himself to you as the God of love that he is. Take a weekend and head to a retreat center where there is lots of quiet and space and time to get to know the God that Jonah knew, the God who was gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He is longing to reveal himself to you. And once we do know those things, once we do know God's character and we are sure like Jonah was, will we be like God? Will we do a little better than Jonah does in the beginning? And will we offer mercy to those around us? Will we extend grace? Will we see a God of mercy and compassion? Jonah, who was so ready to receive God's grace himself, the fish that saved his life and spat him up on land, the vine that was divinely grown to provide him with shade. Those are obvious graces in Jonah's life, but he struggled to extend that grace to the Ninevites. People of grace, can we do better than that? Can we like Jonah, be aware of who our God is, but unlike Jonah, can we be moved in that compassion to extend that grace to other people? This might show up in our relationship with our spouses. Maybe they don't unload the dishwasher or take out the trash, and so we're mad. We pull a Jonah, and we sulk and we pout, and we wait to see what happens. Or maybe the offenses are more serious. Maybe our spouse is angry all the time, or critical all the time, or perhaps has even been unfaithful, physically or emotionally. God is calling us to still extend mercy 
to still extend grace. As we have been the lavish recipients of God's abounding love, he is calling us to do that to others, even when it hurts. The Ninevites were Jonah's enemies. They were going to come through and destroy his nation. And God said, teach them to repent. Offer them my grace. Offer them mercy. And God is calling that to do that with our spouses, even when it's hard, even when they've hurt us, maybe even repeatedly. Perhaps it's not a spouse we're being called to offer grace and mercy to, but a coworker. A coworker who does not pull their weight on work assignments, who takes credit for ideas that were not theirs or work they didn't do. And we want to go out to the outskirts and stew about it. And God says, come. Offer these people your pity and compassion. Give that coworker a second chance. Maybe it's not a coworker, maybe it's a neighbor who plays loud music night after night and you are losing your mind and you're ready to go over to that neighbor and show them how exceedingly displeased you are. And probably you should have a conversation with that neighbor about quiet hours and boundaries and respecting people. But God says, lead with compassion. Start from a place of love. Move toward that neighbor and extend grace in the midst of that conversation. Maybe it's a family member in your immediate family or your extended one who has caused divisions and fractures in these last years and you are ready to throw in the towel when it comes to your relationship with them. Maybe it's an adult child who has wounded you deeply and you don't feel like being slow to anger. God says, move toward them in compassion. As you have been given a second chance, so give this second chance to those around you. Offer them the grace and the mercy that has been so abundantly given to you. People of grace, that's our challenge this morning. Can we extend the love and the grace and the mercy that has been so lavished on him? Jonah knew his God. He knew his God so well. Let's know our God. And let's be like our God. Let's offer compassion and mercy. Who in your life needs to be the recipient of your slowness to anger, of your abounding love? We're going to transition now in our service to the Lord's table. And what a better way to be reminded of God's love than this table, which is a true and deep representation of how deeply God loves us. God sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could receive his grace and his mercy. So this morning, as you come down, remember the God of second chances. Be reminded of the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. As you come down, let this table remind you as, remind, be a reminder of the God that we serve, merciful and compassionate. And let this table be a reminder also of who we are. Forgiven, loved, redeemed.